Hey everyone, this is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast where we interview up-and-coming founders running some of the most innovative technology companies in the world. My guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Otis Aviation, James Doris. Otis is a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft for major airlines, allowing travel times to be cut in half on the world's busiest routes. This was his first time on a podcast, so it was an honor to welcome him to the program. And without further ado, let's jump into the episode. This was not on the list. I just thought of this, but what prompted the name change from Kraft to Otis? It's like Kraft. It's like you're crafting something, you're building it. It was really cool. Yeah. So, so with the name change, we started as Kraft Aerospace and full uh, transparency. That name was created just before we filed the paperwork. So we didn't actually have to give it a ton of thought, um, as often happens in the early days. Uh, as, as we kept going, the dual nature of craft, both crafting and the aircraft itself, uh, we started to get a sense that the crafting part makes you think of handcrafted. And no one, we don't want to fly in a handcrafted aircraft. It seems like they could all be different or maybe there are safety issues. And so what we really wanted was something that, that spoke to kind of the, the journey we are going on. And that's both about the travel experience we're trying to create, but also about being really an inflection point for aviation writ large, that aviation is going to look a lot different in 10 years, in 20 years. And bringing a new aircraft to market is a long journey. So we wanted a name that kind of spoke to that, and we switched from Craft Aerospace to Otis Aviation, Otis being short for Odyssey. Odyssey. Okay, that's amazing. And regional travel, it is something that's becoming, it is coming to the forefront of the tech space, but it is still a very new field. Given that you are so close to the action, I'm wondering how you kind of see it transforming over time. Do you think there's going to be similar to what we're seeing with airlines today, where they might control different regions? Do you think it's going to be an Uber Lyft scenario where a winner takes all? I'm curious to know your outlook on the market, and then perhaps you could speak to how Otis is building and working around those kinds of things. <coughs> sure. For the regional space, it's, uh, well, let's, let's broaden it. Let's provide a little context. Um, within kind of the advanced aviation startups, there's two big, big buckets. And, and uh, let's, for now, leave aside the supersonic guys and the hypersonic guys. Uh, but there's really two buckets. One is the urban air mobility or EV tall companies. And the other is more of the regional distance companies. So the urban air mobility companies are really uh, companies building um, two to five seat aircraft that can fly 50 to 100 miles, maybe a little bit more. And they're really looking to solve the use case of how do I get from one side of an urban center to another side of an urban center without having to be stuck in traffic on the freeways. The regional folks, and, and Otis is certainly one of them, are really focused on how do I get from a city center to another city center hundreds of miles away in a way that is much more efficient, both in carbon pollution and reducing that, but also in that travel experience. And so... At Otis, we've really focused on, we've got to combine vertical takeoff and landing capability with these long distance capabilities, right? And that's so that we can access people much closer to where they start and take them directly much closer to where they actually want to be. Let people skip going to places like LAX and JFK and the big airports 
that are a pain to get to and suck up a lot of time. And so really on a lot of these routes, we're going to take that trip, which is today, 50, 50 minutes in the air, but four and a half hours door to door and turn that into about an hour in the air, but less than two hours door to door. And that's really the value proposition. That makes sense. Now, did you start with wanting to focus on regional travel or, I mean, you worked at, I, I believe it was on the at Virgin on the Hyperloop. I mean, you're a very technical person. Did you have other kind of creative iterations along the way before arriving to what you're doing with Otis? We certainly explored different markets, but the impetus was we had been working at Virgin Hyperloop, which is ostensibly solving the same problem. How do I get from a dense urban city center to another dense urban city center hundreds of miles away at right. high speed with low CO2 and low friction for the travel experience. And so our that was a problem we had been working on and thinking about for years. Um, and so when we, we got through some of the tech development at Hyperloop and demonstrated that that was going to work, we had skepticism on some of the economics there and just the sheer amount of infrastructure that needed to get built. And we were looking for a low infrastructure solution that had an easier path to market. And that's really the birth of Otis Aviation, what's now Otis Aviation. Got it. I, I have to ask this. This is a follow-up question, piggybacking. But do you think we'll ever see something like the Hyperloop in the next 10 to 20 years? Again, you're so close to the action. Like, What is the timeline on this stuff? <laughs> like, I could, Someone like me does not know, does not have the technical expertise, but you do. You know, it's, it's, I like, I never want to say never, um, but they're very challenging unit economics, both in the long term, even when you've got production up and running and producing uh, infrastructure at scale, there are challenges. But there's even bigger challenges getting that first system economically enough to get the project financing for it. And so I think uh, it is a deep challenge. And you've seen Virgin Hyperloop that, that, uh, the most far out in front in building technology uh, and telling that story. And you've seen them shift from passenger transportation entirely to cargo. So I'd say it's a, it's a long and difficult and challenging space. <laughs> well, I got distracted there. We're jumping back to the question list now. Um, there was a TechCrunch article written about you guys, I believe last year at around this time, and it stated the following. I'm going to quote it directly. The company has demonstrated a limited scale model that shows the principles are sound, but they're not claiming a full scale model is ready to go. So I'm wondering if you could speak to the progress that's taken place in the past year and we can, we can take it from there. Yeah, we've, we really focused in the last year on growing the team, closing additional funding and building and flying a lot more aircraft. So, uh, when that article was written, I think we're about five or six full-time people. We're 20 people now today and growing to 25 within the next couple months. And we've added some really core skill sets. <clears throat> One of the folks we added recently is employee 16, and that is our head of certification. His name is Jonathan. Prior to coming here, he was leading certification at Lilium for three years. So we're super happy to have him. We think that's incredibly important. Some companies in this space really added certification teams much later on. We think it's incredibly important to have that focus from the design process and really letting certification influence some of the design decisions. We closed our seed round of funding. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, please. <laughs> I interrupted you. 
Yeah. So on, on, on the funding front, we closed our seed round of funding. That was a $12 million raise. That was fall of last year. And then when the financing environment for startups started getting some headwinds early this year, we injected a little extra capital. Uh, so we, we feel like we're in really good position moving forward. And then on the prototyping front, <clears throat> at the time of the article, we were flying a small one meter prototype, which demonstrated our core vertical takeoff and landing approach. We've now built uh, two additional now eight foot wingspan prototypes. We've been flying those and accumulating flight hours up at the Mojave test, test facility. Uh, and just two days ago, we got our first fuselage of our larger prototype. That's now a one-seater, a 21-foot wingspan prototype. That will get first made in flight in October, and that'll be the first aircraft that we'll start transition and testing on. So we're moving fast, we're building big, and having a ton of fun. That's amazing, man. That, that's awesome. And please, keep me up to date with the progress. Um, you mentioned employee number 19, and it reminded me of a question that Peter Thiel often asks what, people when they go to get funding from him, why would the 20th person join your company? And I'm curious to know how you think about recruiting and hiring. Like, do you, do you rely on your reputation and the things that you've done before? I mean, you've got a, I still don't really know what plasma physics is. If I'm being honest, you got a PhD in it. It's like insanely impressive. Um, is it, you know, you, you try and excite people about the vision and in terms of what it could be if everything works out. Um, how exactly do you kind of pitch um, when it comes to these things? Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is it's all of the above. And hiring, we believe deeply that the number of people we're going to hire this year, that first 25, will make or break our company. It's the most important thing we're going to do this year. And again, we're flying our first human-scale aircraft this year. That's actually not the most important thing. It's hiring. So we put a ton of time and effort in. We take people through fairly long processes. We want to make sure they're a great fit technically as well as from a personality uh, perspective. We highly prioritize people who are team players um, in the startup space and in the technology development space. Uh, there are some prima donnas for sure. Uh, we've all come <laughs> from you know tough experience previously. We think we're great at certain things, but having the humility to also listen uh, and learn from teammates and criticize teammates in a productive way and receive criticism is absolutely key to the team that we're building. <clears throat> All right. You don't need to mention names, but do you have a funny story in terms of the prima donna category? I'll pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Next question. Um, there's another company I'm speaking with called Region Air. Um, they're based in Boston. They're, they're doing regional craft as well, but they're doing it in the form of seaplanes. And what they've done is they've partnered up with airlines. They're selling the technology or the planes themselves directly to the companies, like Hawaiian Air, for instance. There's a company in Germany as well I'm speaking with called Volocopter. They are actually building out all the infrastructure for their, for their EV toll helicopters throughout Germany. Are you planning on doing one or the other? Is there going to be a balance? What does that kind of look like? Yeah, we're, we're much more in the Regent category. In fact, we're entirely in the Regent category. We're going to be an OEM. We're going to build aircraft that enables the next generation of aviation technology and travel experience. And we can get away with this business model because we're targeting regional distances, right? Some of the folks who are doing really short range, a lot of airlines aren't quite sure how to operate those small aircraft that go short distances. 
There are a lot of regional carriers globally that operate those regional distances today. Their customers are already flying those distances. So it's a big benefit uh, building a product for this space because there's a natural customer base and a natural uh, airline base. And to be clear, building a profitable airline is non-trivially difficult. Margins are generally thin. When fuel prices increase, a lot of people go out of business. So we are very excited to partner with some of the best folks in the world. And just like Regent, although we haven't really announced it publicly, we've signed a number of deals with folks uh, within this, this space. And we're talking now with not only regional operators, but even the mainline carriers. So the big question then is, when is the service going to be available? When can I use it? When can I buy my ticket? We think entry into service 2027. We th also think that's aggressive, right? When there's a lot of folks really focusing on 2024, 2025, that's even more aggressive and even more challenging. We prefer to take an engineering schedule that we can believe in, we think is plausible, that is on the right side of aggressive and uh, really gun and build our team around that, that plan. Got it. Okay. Well, th this might be a bit of a personal question, but when we were speaking on our last call, you mentioned how little some of your education, like for example, plasma physics, it's not as transferable to Otis as you would think. And I think you're, you're just very humble in saying that, like you're a very smart guy. Um, most of my audience is 18 to 25. And I think there is a bit of this fear in terms of, you know, where will they fit? Hiring is one of the most expensive things a company will do, but it's also the one thing students worry most about, finding that world-class career, finding something that they'll be truly happy at. So maybe going back to when you were a student, like what did you do to kind of not maximize your potential to employers? Because I think that's the wrong way to look at it. But what did you do to kind of figure out your way? And were there projects that you did, courses you took, anything that was like tangible that really helped you kind of improve where you could go in the future? I think for... For folks just starting out, you know, finishing school, maybe getting their first job or their second job, maybe finishing a master's program and coming into engineering and really have the passion for big projects like Otis or like a supersonic company or an eVTOL company, uh, there's a ton of places, right? A, a, a big technology company needs a breadth of talent that some are super experienced and some are less experienced um, and a lot more nimble. Uh, so it's that it's that diversity that's important. Now that said, I think that project work and actually building things is incredibly critical. So the more as a student you can get involved in Formula One SAE or the Rocket Club or even better, things entirely outside of school. Do an internship with a startup, build something, video it, make yourself a portfolio. So even though you're an engineer and it's not traditional to have a portfolio, make yourself a portfolio, take pictures, take video of everything cool you've ever built, and then be able to explain explicitly what you did to contribute to that project. It's really important to know what, what you're good at, but equally as important to know what you still have to become good at. And when you're talking about the projects you've been involved in, be really explicit about what you've done and what others have done. That'll give companies like us a real clear sense of who you are, both that it's incredibly important that you're self-aware and understand where you need to grow. That's the type of folks we want to hire, uh, per, per, particularly for the younger generation. 
Definitely. And another question on hiring, what would you say is something counterintuitive about it? And I mean that from the student's perspective. They think they might need a particular credential. I come from a finance background and there's something called the CFA, Chartered Finance Association. Everyone thought they needed that. And it was really vanilla after a certain point, after everyone got it, right? So is there something in your opinion that people feel like they need that they really don't or something that they feel like they don't need, but it would actually be so, so helpful if they had that experience? I mean, I'll dovetail back on something that I was saying. I think, so it's not exactly what what you need to have or have done, but how you present yourself is incredibly important. And being able to say what you don't know is incredibly important. One of the things that I'll do when I'm interviewing people is I'll keep pushing them further and further and deeper and deeper, particularly on topics that I have a good depth of knowledge. And I can tell when they start moving from what they actually know to when they're bullshitting. And as soon as they start bullshitting, instead of saying, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't done that before, or, I don't know that. I'm done with that interview. I'm moving on. That candidate is no good to me because if you come work for me and you're working on a critical system, and to be clear, we don't hire people that aren't working on critical systems. We're a startup. Everyone works on a critical system. If you're going to bullshit on that critical system, you're going to kill our company. Fair enough. For people listening, you know, know what you're good at, know what you aren't, and be honest about it. I think that's a very good piece of advice. Okay, jumping to that next question. In our last call, you mentioned the only reason that someone should start a company is if there's a problem out there that they're dying to solve. And I think that entrepreneurship, startups, they have become more in vogue. They become easier than ever to start. I wouldn't say hardware is easier than ever. It's very difficult, but software in particular, you can just write a few lines of code and that's your MVP. Um Maybe you could maybe you could speak to that again. Could you kind of just retell what you told me on that last call? Yeah, sure. I mean, two things. I'm a huge believer in live and let live and then try to help others along the way. And so I think one of the best ways I can be helpful for someone thinking about starting a company is, and I mean, you've heard this on a bazillion podcasts, right? Starting a startup is incredibly difficult. Even the successful ones go through very difficult, tough times. The way to maximize the probability of success and making it through those tough times is to have an incredibly deep abiding passion for the problem you're going to solve. So I think that is requisite. Like on the flip side, I have met people who, you know, there's some folks that start startups and they're like, well, I'm going to work on startup number one purely for a quick exit, because then I'll have the financial upside to go fund or go find my real passion project. I think that's a flawed approach because even the most, you know, startups that look like they're going to be easy or that they're extra compelling from investment perspective or speed to market is uh, appears to be really fast. Even those startups are going to be hard. And I'd just much rather be in the trenches in hard times with like-minded people working on trying to solve the same problem we're both passionate about, that makes getting through those tough times, frankly, possible. And I think uh, when you don't have that and the tough times come, it makes it untenable. We hear stories of 
people like Elon Musk sleeping on the floor of the Tesla factory. And it's almost this like productivity porn where you got to put in a hundred hour weeks. And if not, you're, ju you're just not going to succeed. And I do agree that there is something to be said about putting in the time, working smarter and not harder. But how do you think about your career as well as some of the more intangible things, whether it be your friends, your family, and things like that? Yeah, I think <clears throat> even joining a startup, not as a founder, but even as an early employee, uh, you've got to take responsibility for your mental health, your relationship health, and your well-being. Uh, yes, you're going to work a lot because startups are, by their nature, highly resource constrained. And we set yes. ambitious <laughs> goals. And the only way that that comes to fruition is we work a lot and we work a lot because we love what we're doing, right? At the same time, I've also seen uh, a lot of boyfriends and girlfriends implode for people at startups. I've seen divorces at startups. And if you're not, you know, taking the time off when you need it and then making sure to prioritize your significant others, then you're going to, you know, suffer the consequences. And frankly, that's a negative feedback on productivity at work, right? There is nothing like, you know, a terrible breakup to really wipe someone out from being productive for a month or more. Um, and so I, I think, you know, at, at our company, we, we have an unlimited vacation policy. Um, and that's, that's mostly driven uh, so that folks don't have to count days. Not that people take, you know, six, eight, 10, 10 weeks off. Nobody does. We all work hard. But we want people to really own that ownership of their responsibility to raise a hand and say, I need to take a couple of days off. Like I need to take my partner on a, on a vacation. I need to go home and visit family. Um, we want them to take ownership and make sure that's a priority. Absolutely. When did you know for yourself it was the right time to break away and start your own thing? So I've been thinking about starting a startup for 15 years from even back when I was in grad school. Um, oh, that's amazing. And it's, and it's not, yeah, it's not because I think I'm particularly well suited for it. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's because, you know, I don't like to follow directions or I don't like to listen to other people. Maybe that's part of it. <laughs> um, but I mean, I've been thinking about it for, for, for a long time. At the same time, the problems that I'm drawn to are typically really big and the solutions typically have a physical manifestation or, and my background is really developing hardware. So I knew right. that it would be foolish to try to start something right out of grad school, right? That would be a recipe for face planting. Um, so I've almost exclusively worked at startups and whether that was EV companies or Hyperloop companies uh, or even companies developing CFD software, uh, it was really important to get a lot of those experiences, see different startups from different views. Hopefully you see one startup that's a little bit successful. I'm sure you'll see a couple of startups that fall on their face. You're going to learn a ton and you'll actually learn more by spending time at startups that fail because you'll see exactly what they did wrong and start to uh, build your own perspective on what it's going to take to make a startup successful. So what advice would you give for people that are just finishing grad school, maybe in their postdoc program, and they are thinking of starting that company? Um, 
because you're right. At a certain point, there there is the right time to break off. And if you go too early, you're going to face plant. So was there like was there a skill set that you accumulated when you knew, okay, this is going to be the time to break away? Or did it just kind of bug you for too long? And you're like, you know what? You know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to do it now. I mean, I think that there's, there's no specific skill set that is like, if you go and do this and you acquire this skill, you will therefore have a, a, a successful startup. There's no way. Yes. Um, fair so enough. I, think I, I you, gotcha. You will know when you're ready, either because this problem you're working on has become such a deep abiding passion that you can't imagine yourself working on something else. That's a good sign, right? That's, that's time to start considering it, but it's not, it's probably not enough. You also have to make sure you have a deep abiding understanding of the market and the customers you're going to sell to and the pain that they face and what they're willing to pay for to solve the problem. Um, I think that's also incredibly important. If you find yourself in a situation where you think you have an insight about a customer base or a market segment and what they need, and you're frustrated that no one's building that and it, and you think it's a huge problem, like go for it. And then if there are gaps in skills between what you and your founding team have and what the company is going to need, well, that's called go hire great people, right? Build, build a team and go for it. Right. I, I was joking at the beginning of the episode that although I don't have Joe Rogan's audience, we do have some in the hundreds of monthly listeners. And I actually got an email a little bit earlier last week when I had reached out and said, hey, I'm interviewing Otis Aviation. Any questions you want me to ask? One of them was, how do, we, how do you fundraise? How does a hardware company fundraise beyond just an MVP or a slide deck? Because I feel like it's very different from software where there is like, there's less of a demo component. Um, but again, this is some, coming from someone that hasn't worked at those kinds of companies. So please speak to that. Yeah, so I'll give a, a high-level perspective and it's not going to be very tactical. Um, there's a whole other answer that is the tactical answer. And uh, if, you're, if any of your listeners really want to hear about the tactical answer, reach out to me. Happy to have a chat. Um, on the highest level... I think uh, pitching to VCs, one, it's not about a slide deck. In fact, like you can make that slide deck, but when you actually talk to them, if you're going through a, your book report, showing the slides, saying a little bit and filibustering for 15 minutes, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to fail every time, right? It's a conversation. Don't even bring up the slide deck. Just have a conversation with that, uh, with that investor. You want to tell the most succinct version of your story as quickly as possible, and then be quiet and let that investor guide where they have questions. Now it's a two-way street, right? Now they're engaged. Now they're learning. Um, you don't have to explain all of the details about why your company's great in the first, you know, in, in the first go, because that's going to turn into 15, 20 minutes of just you talking. That's going to be a recipe for failure. If you find yourself talking for more than three minutes at a time, it's probably a bad sign. <clears throat> right. Okay. That, Makes sense. I'll be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, I have I have another perspective on 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 the fundraising thing, and I think it's it's a little silly, but I think it's a value, right? I think to raise money and to pitch well, you need to do just two things. Okay. Item number one. You've got to develop 
an incredibly compelling solution to a really hard problem, demonstrate that you and your team are going to be the best in the world at bringing that solution to life, deeply understand the pain and motivations of the customer base and have unique insights into why they make the decisions that they make, and that they're willing to pay for your solution at a price that makes your company incredibly and wildly profitable. That's item number one, right? I.e., actually do the work to define what the business is. That's a ton of work, right? The other thing you have to do well is you have to tell the story of this company that is hugely complicated and complex, and you have to tell it in a concise and confident and compelling way that resonates with the investor's worldview, right? And so it's like, build this incredible behemoth of hard work. That's only half of it. The other half is tell the story. And I think too many engineers think it's just number one, right? And we're not natural storytellers, a lot of us. I'm certainly not. But that was going to be my next question. You've got to practice. And, and there's kind of like, I think, I've like, I don't know if it's a dirty little secret, but if you're good enough at number two, you can half-ass number one in the near term. You will regret it later. If you, if you half-ass one, actually define the business, but you're a great storyteller, you can raise money for sure, right? In, and if all you're doing is optimizing for raising money, then do that. But uh, you're setting yourself up for a world of pain for you, your family, your employees, your investors down the road when it turns out you raised a billion dollars and your unit economics don't close or your customers don't actually care about your product or you know your team actually doesn't have what it takes to commercialize it. So I lean much more on nail number one and then be able to tell that story. And for folks like me that aren't very natural storytellers, I require to have number one nailed to be able to tell that story with, with, with confidence. But I, that is an awesome explanation. Like, seriously, thank you so much. Okay, we're, man, we're already approaching time. This has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it, James. I'm always curious to know what people are passionate about that they don't get asked about a lot because startups are so all-consuming. So is there like a, a hobby maybe no one knows about that you have or a pastime that you're really into? Well, my wife definitely knows about it because... I'm complaining to her and talking about it all the time. When she's sick of hearing <laughs> it. Um, but I mean, and, and, and I credit, I think either credit or discredit my mom. <laughs> my, my mom raised two boys. She's a bit of a hippie in her day. And so like, I've always spent a lot of time thinking about human nature and how do we bring out kind of more fairness and justice within the world. And, and so right now, I spend a lot of time thinking about that in relation to information flow and media and misinformation and disinformation and how information is shaping what people see as their reality. And now it seems like we live in a world where, you know, people get information from very different sources and then have very different views of what's true and what's real. So I think a lot of time, I spend a lot of time thinking about like the nature of, of reality <laughs> and how to identify it. And uh, I don't, and I'm not saying I have any answers yet, um, but if I wasn't working on building aircraft, I'd probably be working on something in this realm. I have a follow-up question. Like, do you practice some kind of stoicism in that respect? Like, I 
I've, I've, for example, I've never really had social media and I find that whenever I go on like Twitter or LinkedIn, it's just these like mumbo jumbo posts about like pseudo enlightenment. And it becomes like very depressing after a certain point because like people truly believe what they're posting. It's like, man, there's, that's just one opinion on the whole spectrum of the issue at the end of the day. I mean, one, I don't spend really any time on social media. I'm just, it's maybe I'm too old. I've got the gray hair. Uh, my wife doesn't. We actually, we actually still call each other on the phone and use like the actual audio, you know, part of, of, of a phone call. Um, so I think uh, one, I honestly think that's a really healthy thing to do is to, is to spend less time on social media. And in fact, like not to plug Otis yet again, but it's almost part of why we're doing Otis. Like we think uh, human interaction in physical world uh, is super important and we want to promote travel so you can go visit the people you care about and spend more time with them at a time when some startups are trying to get you to spend more time in front of the screen and live your life in some virtual world. Like I got no interest in that. <laughs> the whole metaverse thing. Yeah. <laughs> No, thanks. You won't be using it? <laughs> I mean, if I have to go in the metaverse to raise money from VCs, then, then <laughs> you'll see me there, and then I'll get the hell out of the soon. Okay. All right. On that note, um, if people are interested in connecting with you or learning more about the company, where can they find it? I mean, best way is just reach out, come check us out at our website, www.otisaviation.com, info at otisaviation.com. That uh, will go to me and a few other folks. Um, and if you're interested in maybe working for us, reach out. Um, we have a careers section on our webpage and we're always hiring. Awesome. Okay. We'll leave it here. James Doris, co-founder and CEO of Otis Aviation. Man, thank you so much. This is awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Cassius.